is an Odyssey original. This is Coronavirus Daily. I'm Charles Feldman. And I'm Mike Simpson. We're in the KNX Odyssey studios in Los Angeles. Are you feeling free today? First day workers in California can show up on the job without a mask in more than a year uh, if you're vaccinated, fully vaccinated. But are you still hesitant, no matter where you are, to go out without one? Does it feel kind of weird? We'll talk about it. People suffering from long-haul COVID, well, they are also developing mental health issues. There was even a high-profile suicide. There's a major company in New York telling its workers, you're going back to the office whether you want to or not. We'll also hear how the pandemic crushed the dreams of a restaurant owner in Los Angeles and what she plans to do to bounce back. We start, though, with ripping off the face masks. Dr. Peter Chin Hong, UC San Francisco. So, Dr., some people comfortable without them, some people are not. But for those who are fully vaccinated, should they be uncomfortable if they still want to keep one on? There are multiple reasons why people are still wearing masks. If you walk around Northern California, where I'm at, In San Francisco, tons of people are still wearing masks, and I find that really interesting and really speaks to your point. I think it's something that we've become very familiar with. Like you pointed out, you feel naked almost without your mask. Um, It's something that's been habitual, uh, something we have agency over when so much of the pandemic was out of control. Um, But again, some of the points include the fact that, you know, you have to have some trust uh, amongst who is not wearing a mask who may be unvaccinated and particularly if i think you are not convinced that you might have had an immune response or what have you or you know so again there are multiple reasons we can talk about them forever including privacy i think there have been interesting blogs about people who felt you know they hadn't had as many cat calls during the pandemic because again you're you're more incognito uh during the during that mask wearing phase do you also have to, if you're having trouble taking it off and you know you're fully vaccinated, but you're still, you know, having worries, you got to trust that vaccine, right? Like you trust other vaccines that you've had in your life, but the mask, because it's on my face and I can feel it, it makes me maybe feel more protected when really the vaccine is is the huge thing here. Exactly. It's just something that's visible and a visible manifestation of you being protected against the outside bad world of the virus but actually, all the action is happening on the inside that you can't see. Now, I, I'm presuming because you're a healthcare worker that you're vaccinated. Uh, and if my presumption is correct, when you're not in a hospital setting, uh, a medical setting, what are you doing? Um, it's it's tough. So I think you know one of the aspects that comes to mind in my own experience is that. So I went, yeah, you know, the other day to the bakery, and I was all set to be bold and you know, toss off my mask. Um, And, um, you know, all the workers were still wearing masks because businesses can still elect to, you know, have a higher standard if they fall the workers and the business decide decided to. And because they were all wearing a mask, I I put mine back on because, again, it was an act of solidarity with the people around me. And I think you'd see people doing that at least in the beginning, we, we I don't know how long, but certainly it's almost like etiquette or politeness. I, I, I sat in the lobby of my building today and I watched. Yeah. If people were getting in the elevator and there were already people with masks on, they put theirs on. If they got in an elevator with no masks, then they didn't. Because it's like, oh, I'm going to do what these other people are doing. <laughs> so, Doctor, does this come down to how much backbone people have? Is that what, is that what this comes down to? Exactly. I mean, there is social pressure to masking, particularly in California. Um 
Um, but again, the science says right now, given where we are in the pandemic, then it's definitely okay if you're vaccinated not to wear your mask. Um, but I think um, people will take some time to be comfortable with that. Um, and, and again, if everybody else is wearing a mask, you feel almost like the rogue one not wearing one. So I think that's kind of where we are at right now. Dr. Peter Hong, University of California, San Francisco. Heidi Farrar was a veteran writer for several high-profile TV shows, including Dawson's Creek. In April of 2020, Heidi became infected with COVID, and she developed long-lasting symptoms. Heidi's family announced this week that she had taken her own life at the end of May at the age of 50, no longer willing to endure the long-haul symptoms. She leaves behind a husband, son, many other COVID long haulers who continue to battle the effects of the virus. Dr. Natalie Lamberts, Associate Professor of Medicine, Indiana University School of Medicine, studies long haul COVID. And Diana Barentz, founder of Survivor Corps, support group for COVID survivors. Doctor, let's start with you. Some of these symptoms, they don't just last, you know, a couple of weeks. It's not like just a headache. It, they're every day and they're really, really bad still. They are, yes. Yep, we do research with long haulers who report symptoms as wide ranging from terrible headaches, difficulty concentrating. Um, some people have pain in their extremities, um, different types of nerve, nerve sensation, confusion, abdominal pain. Pretty much every bodily sim- system can be impacted, and the, the symptoms can cause a lot of pain and discomfort. So it's not like it's a low grade flu that people are taking a long time to recover from. These are symptoms that are very life altering. Diana, I don't know if if you know whether or not uh, Heidi was uh, in a support group, but uh, regardless of whether she was or wasn't, what does a support group do? Well, first of all, I absolutely recommend anybody who thinks that they might be suffering from long-term COVID to join Survivor Corps. We're an open group on Facebook. Our website is SurvivorCorps.com. And on that website lists all of the post-COVID care centers around the country and where you can seek help. And um, the tragic story of this is that she had tried on multiple occasions to get admitted to the Cedars-Sinai program and had just gotten the referral through that day or the day before. And so we need to focus on access. So, you know, We talk about the celebrities who have taken their lives, and it is absolutely tragic. We think about Kent Taylor, the founder of Texas Roadhouse, who took his life after COVID because he was suffering from tinnitus, from ringing in the ears. That is not something you would think is would cause suicide, but can cause such mental anguish and such personal grief and not ability to go on with your life, that we need to consider every single symptom and think about all of the people in between whose names we're not hearing and stories we're not hearing. So I guess there's there's some comfort in knowing that you're not alone going through this, although you're still going through it. So so what do you say to people who, who are dealing with it day in and day out? I mean, the one thing is that you need to seek medical care. A lot of these issues can be dealt with. And unfortunately, we are just at the beginning of understanding the biological mechanisms behind long-term COVID. And we are not yet at the road, you know, we are on a road to a therapeutic, but it's a long road and we're not there yet, but there are things that are available that can ease your discomfort, that can make your 
quality of life better. And I also want to say that um, Survivor Corps ran a study of long haulers who received the vaccine and over 40%, 45% of our members who received the vaccine felt improvements from their symptoms. Um, anywhere from mild symptomatic relief to full symptomatic relief. That doesn't mean that the vaccine is a cure, it's a clue. But that's also a reminder that even if you've had COVID, Right. Go get your vaccine and yeah. get both doses. Doctor, uh, Doctor, let me ask you a, a question, and, and it, it probably doesn't matter to the person suffering from the depression from being a long hauler, but it may make a difference, I suspect, in how it's treated. And my question is, do we know whether the depression that some of these long haulers have is a psychological effect of the physical symptoms they have, or is the depression itself a biological symptom uh, effect of the COVID infection? That's a really fantastic question. And what I would say right now is that it absolutely is both. So it's clear that there are severe neurological impacts that COVID causes. We know that it's causing things like encephalitis. The virus can attack the nervous system, which manifests in a lot of different ways. So we know that there are some biological reasons why someone could be feeling depression or anxiety after being infected with the virus. Now, if you can imagine the case of a long hauler who's, you know, been suffering for a long time, a lot of strange symptoms, they can't work, their family members don't understand why they look pretty much okay, but they're not able to go back to normal activities, people may be losing their jobs, they don't have answers from their doctor, there's a lot of these external reasons why people could be experiencing different types of mental health problems as well. But we cannot forget about the neurological component because that's something that needs to be assessed and treated. So how do you even start to, to pick all this apart when you're working on it and, and unraveling you know, the mystery that is long COVID? Well, part of it is finding the right scans. Part of it is doing the research to get answers to this. But overall, we need awareness. We can't just, you know, we, we can't let it happen that when long haulers go into a doctor to get treatment, that the first assumption is that it's anxiety and depression on its own. We can't do that. We need to be developing the right types of scans to identify the neurological problems and to make sure that all physicians know that that's something they need to be on the lookout for. Dana, I am curious, uh, just because we're trying to kind of get our heads around how many long haulers are out there. Just for your group, how many are we talking about? Well, we have about 170,000 people in our Facebook group with a far greater reach through our website and our newsletters and everything else. But the numbers are absolutely staggering. And, you know, if you think about the number of people who have actually been infected, let alone the number of people who have been reported, you know, through the CDC, um, the actual number is you know, staggeringly high. And if you take even the most conservative estimate of, you know, let's say 25% of those people, and we don't yet know because we haven't been around long enough to see what the long-term impacts are. And we need to also keep in mind that this is affecting children also. Um, children experience long COVID. And that is really, really important for people to know in terms of making choices on whether or not to vaccinate their children and how susceptible they might be. And also to be on the lookout for signs if their child has had COVID and is suddenly exhibiting any sort of, you know, 
you know, don't just chalk everything up to lockdown and pandemic malaise. Um, we know that COVID passes the blood-brain barrier. And as I always say, we started off thinking about COVID as a respiratory infection. We quickly learned that it was also an inflammatory and um, vascular disease. And But I believe that we will look back on it largely, not, not entirely, but in large part as a neurological disease. And so we are seeing stories of young adolescents having psychiatric breaks and seizure disorders and really profound issues. Um, if that is happening to your child or a child you know, please make sure that they get a medical workup. This is not an unheard thing to happen after a virus. This seems to be happening more so after COVID than other viruses. But these are things that need to be assessed medically. Yeah. Diana Barents, founder of Survivor Corps, support group for COVID survivors. Diana, thank you. Dr. Natalie Lamberts at the Indiana University School of Medicine has that lab studying the long symptoms. Thanks to you both. The CEO of Morgan Stanley telling employees in its New York offices that they need to come back to work in person and this fall. Morgan Stanley isn't the only company forcing workers back to the office. But what if the workers say, no, I don't want to go? Employment attorney Paul Starkman answers those questions from WBBM's Cisco Cotto. Well, the problem with that is uh, employers have a right to require their employees to come back to the office subject to having to make some accommodations for people with disabilities and uh, perhaps uh, religious uh, objections. But other than that, uh, employers get to to decide where uh, their employees are going to work and they can require them to come back to work. Do employees have any wiggle room here or do they pretty much just have to go along with the employer and whatever they say? Well, they certainly have some some wiggle room in terms of uh, um, what they want to do and how they can uh, negotiate a uh, perhaps a hybrid ar- arrangement or even uh, a work-from-home arrangement. But uh, other than that, if the uh, employer is saying uh, everybody must come to work and we want people uh, at the office working together, then uh, there's not a whole lot of options for uh, employees at that point. What about when it comes to getting the vaccine? Because employers want employees back in-house, but they want, you know, they want them to actually get the vaccine. Can they make you do this? They, they certainly can require um, that you get vac- vaccinated in order to return to work. Uh, that, that's certainly uh, something that, that's been a uh, uh, subject of uh, official guidance. So uh, employers do have that, that uh, right to, to require uh, vaccinations. When it comes to Morgan Stanley, I mean, they're saying September, which is still a few months away. Uh, is your advice to employers to be sensitive with this, to, to maybe be gradual with getting employees back to the office? Because you do still have some people who are they're just not comfortable coming back. Yes, I, th- I think the, the the better course for, for most employers and uh, obviously uh, each uh, um, president or CEO has to make his own or her own uh, decision, but uh, the better course is to see how uh, things play out, see how the vaccination rates continue, you know, as long as they continue to to increase in terms of the number of people getting vaccinated, how the uh, that there's no, uh, you know, subsequent resurgence of the of the disease. 
but to see how things uh, progress as we uh, get further along through the summer and into the fall and and be flexible as to how they're going to return their workforce to the offices. Yeah, that's a way to not only, uh, well, I guess the main thing there is you, you just sort of create better morale, right? Because, I mean, you don't have yeah, people that, feeling like they're forced into it. Exactly. That's certainly a, a major issue now is, is a lot of, uh, um, employees have indicated that they would either refuse a raise if they had to, rather than go into the office, or they would even quit their job. So there's there's certainly some backlash uh, to uh, employers uh, forcing employees to come back to the office. Thanks so much. Good insight from Paul Starkman, an employment attorney. Coming up after this short break, a dream destroyed by the pandemic. We've gone over how the pandemic has devastated restaurants. Andrea Borgen Abdallah is the owner of Barcito in downtown L.A. She spent the last year trying to keep her restaurant afloat throughout all of the COVID restrictions. At one point, she even transitioned into a grocery store of sorts to keep some money coming in. Kept the doors on, kept the lights on, had health insurance for the employees. Looked like things were going to be fine. She was going to make it. But just as stuff started returning to normal... She says she's throwing in the towel. Andrea with us now. Um, why shut down now when things are starting to reopen? You know, it's been, I think restaurants are a tough business in general, pandemic or not. And, you know, we came into this kind of really fo- laser focused on on ensuring that we survived, you know, that our, our employees kept their health care, that kind of the most vulnerable didn't lose their, their hours or their paychecks. And, uh, you know, I just, you know, we got to a point where we kind of made it, everyone was vaccinated. And I just realized I did not have it in me to reopen and go back to normal and pretend like everything was okay in the face of everything that we suffered along the way. Yeah. Do you think there was so much pressure to get to reopening day and then to reopen and, and, and open those doors again? And it's just, you just, you don't have, you don't have the the power to do it. You made it all the way through, which is amazing. But I mean, I think everyone assumes that the restaurants are going to come back, going to open back up, but it's not for everybody after a certain point, I guess. Yeah, I think it's a lot of things. I mean, I I think it's a tough business in general. I think, um, you know, this really could have been an opportunity for us to fix so many of the things that are broken in our industry. And we never really got the chance to do that because we, you know, just for struggling to survive this entire time, you know, until quite recently, we didn't know if we were going to get any kind of relief, what form that was going to take, who was going to benefit from it. Uh, and I and I think that there's still a huge reckoning to be had. I think there are a lot of debts to be paid. Um, and, and so, you know, we're, we're certainly not out of the woods here uh, as, as far as everyone kind of thinks and expects. How long, how long have you been in the uh, restaurant business, Andrea? Uh, yeah, it's been a little over 10 years, but we've been at this location. I opened this restaurant almost six years ago. Okay. So what are you going to do now? I mean, this is sort of in your (laughs) blood, right? So, so now what? Yeah, that's a great question. I I honestly, I don't know. I'm not, I'm not looking to jump right back into ops again. I think, uh, I certainly love this industry. I think it has so much to offer. Um, I think, you know, I'd like to do something kind of more mission driven, whether it's advocating for our employees and, and getting kind of better wages and lifestyles for them or, Workforce development, I think there's so many different angles of things that I'd be interested in. So kind of excited to take some time and figure it out. You know, so many people rallied around their local spots to try and to keep them uh, afloat. What did we learn through this that, that was positive about restaurants? And then take me through some of the stuff that you say, yeah, we still need to fix this. Yeah, you know, I, th- I think the pandemic was certainly a time where people didn't take us for granted as as 
much as maybe they had in the past and maybe started to really, I think internally restaurants kind of talk a lot about the issues that we have, but we don't talk about them with our guests as much as we should. And I think um, the pandemic really kind of laid that bare, just how kind of week to week our finances are and how much we really do depend on their support. Uh, Although I think, you know, in this circumstance in particular, it should not have been on our guests to bail us out. It should have been on our officials and our government uh, who had, you know, mandated us closed. Uh, so I really hope that that these learnings kind of continue on past this and guests start to become a bigger part of those conversations and also advocate for for the employees who work in this industry that, that really kind of get the short end of the stick too often. What would it take to get you back into the restaurant business? <laughs> Um, yeah, I think at least as far as Barcito is concerned, I've, I've definitely kind of uh, cleaned my hands of it. Unfortunately, I, it was a tough decision to make and I feel really good about, uh, where I'm at right now, you know, and I, I All right, never but another, say never. But another, another the industry. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I mean, what would it take to get you Someday. back? Someday. Cause you're looking for a mission. Feeding Mike is important. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, you know, I think I think it'd have to be maybe a little bit broader in scope than that. But, um, you know, I think there's plenty of organizations Also, I cannot there, afford both... a personal chef, so. <laughs> oh, okay. Yeah, there's that too. Uh, profitable and nonprofit that do a lot of good work. And I'm sure that if, if I found the route fit, it, it wouldn't take much to convince me. Who is doing good work out there? Because there are so many of these, like, community-based. And, and you tried to turn into that grocery store, right? I remember there were, like, there was eggs and flour and stuff for sale to get everybody through parts of this but we we have other organizations in la and it's, it's kind of like meal for meal right you buy something from us we give it to somebody who's in need yeah yeah i mean i think there's so many there's i do a lot of work at the downtown women's center uh through their social enterprises i think they're doing really great work uh there's a for-profit called every table that's based here in los angeles that helps feed folks in need by kind of a sliding scale model um i think there's yeah no end of, of really great folks doing good work in this in this space did people try to talk you out of it other than us? Yeah, you're you're not the first, but you know, it's kind of funny. It's like, oh, just just hire someone, take a break. And you know, it's it's unfortunately <laughs> yeah. it's not that simple. And uh unless you're gonna pay for them, I don't really know where the money's gonna come from. So well, in, that, in that case, good luck. Yeah, <laughs> yeah exactly. Shows over, Thank sorry. You. Uh, <laughs> gotta leave. No, um like neighborhood restaurants like yours, we lost so many of them. Um, you know, they didn't close because they wanted to they closed because they couldn't stay afloat anymore what do you lose when those go away hopefully something comes by and replaces them but like you know you can't yeah, just have a bunch of chains. it's not a starbucks or a chase bank you know right. that's that's yeah. kind of my in, in the middle of this pandemic that was that was sort of the the sort of thing i kind of kept trying to shout from the rooftops too was the places that we're going to lose in this are going to be small businesses and they're going to get taken over by places that could stay afloat because they had endless amounts of cash because they're either publicly traded companies or, you know, just have other resources that we don't. And I think that that's something that we really need to think a lot about as we kind of continue to reopen and rebuild um, is how we're going to keep these small businesses afloat because they're really the fabric of our communities. And when I go out to eat, when I go and walk around my neighborhood, you know, I don't want to just see chain, chain store and chain restaurant after chain store and chain restaurant. Well, well, and, and, place and, I live. And, and I totally get where you're coming from, because one of my big uh, you know, grievances when a you know, small restaurant, a non-chain restaurant goes out of business is that they often have their own recipes for things and you get to like a certain way that some dish is made. And when that restaurant goes, there goes that dish. You may never have it again or anything like it again. Yeah, yeah, sure. I mean, there's there's all kinds of things to be lost, I think. Uh 
Yeah. So give us your recipes. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, part of the problem too is that they're complicated. Like, if I gave you the recipe, you take one look at it and say, "Oh, I'm not <laughs> doing do this." Home. Yeah, no. Yeah, yeah. what a pain. Want to go down the street and get it instead? <laughs> yeah. Totally. All right. Well, hey, thanks for talking to us. Uh, we wish you the best. Thanks for all the food. And then what? There's there's the goodbye party later this month. Yeah, we're gonna have yes yeah, in a week, basically a week a week from tomorrow. We're gonna have our first on-site uh, outdoor drinks. From five to nine, just a little chance to say goodbye to everybody. All right. I'll be there. Andrea, thanks. Hey, thank you. Andrea Borgen Abdalla, owner of Barcito in downtown LA. I'm worried you're not going to eat now. <laughs> I know. I'll have to keep going. Just walk down the street <laughs> and keep going and try every restaurant until I find a new place. Dads can thank the vaccines if they have a nice Father's Day this weekend with their families. A new CBS poll shows that more than half of Americans are the dad plan on seeing him in person on Father's Day. More will be seeing their father in person than did so last year at the height of the coronavirus pandemic. A year ago, just 43% of Americans with a dad uh, planned on seeing him in person. This is an Odyssey original. You can find us on the Odyssey app, Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, and Stitcher. 